We all go to the doctor. Sometimes we even have surgery. But what about using virtual reality to do telemedicine and to teach future doctors? Today on episode number 281 of CXO Talk, we are speaking with a pioneer in using virtual reality for just these purposes. I'm Michael Kriegsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. I want to say a sincere thank you to Livestream for supporting CXO Talk, low these many years. And if you go to uh, livestream.com slash CXO Talk, in fact, they will give you a discount on their plans. Our guest today is Dr. Shafi Ahmed, who is a practicing surgeon in London. And uh, Shafi Ahmed, thank you so much for taking time on your evening to be with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. So uh, Shafi, please tell us about your work. So yeah, as you've said um, earlier, I'm a practicing surgeon. I'm a cancer specialist, and I specialize in what's called laparoscopic or keyhole uh, colorectal surgery. And that's kind of my day job. I also uh, have a medical school. I'm an associate dean at Bart's Medical School, and I've been there for a number of years teaching undergraduate medical students, as well as being a trainer for postgraduate students. And in my kind of uh, outside of the medical world, I tend to run some tech companies and do a lot of speaking internationally on the future of medicine and uh, play around with technology, I guess, see how we can influence clinical practice and education. You know, it's pretty extraordinary to hear you say that you play around with technology. Uh, would you share with us some of that playing around with, the uh, with technology that you've done? Okay, so if you if we go back uh, a few years ago, I, I initially was one of the Google Glass explorers, and we use a Google Glass uh, to live stream using live stream actually the software and the app to live stream an operation uh, around the world, and I, I taught about fourteen thousand students across the globe in a single operation, so they could see what I was watching, and they could text me during the operation, which would come off the Google Glass, answer in real time. So it's a way of connecting people around the world in a way that we haven't been done before. I took that further forward with the virtual reality, and we created our own kind of uh, live stream using uh, 360 cameras so that we could uh, bring people into the OR uh, with me in virtual reality using a smartphone uh, and a Google Cardboard. And that was a kind of different way of teaching the art of surgery. On that day, I taught 55,000 people in 142 countries and 4,000 cities. So it just shows impact that people have. More recently, I've been working around with holograms, avatars to connect doctors around the world, to discuss patients, to perhaps educate people, uh, and to kind of reshape the way that human interaction is forming in medicine. And I've also used social media, um, Facebook, Instagram, and, and Snapchat, which kind of um, had a lot of interest around the world, teaching millions of people using these media because they're free, they're accessible. And students these days who are much younger than we are, are using social media in a way that we haven't seen before, and it empowers them. And you can teach thousands of people on a single day across the globe just by the power of connectivity, uh, Michael. Shafi, it seems like there is tremendous interest and demand for exposing uh, surgery in this way to a wider audience, both among 
medical practitioners, medical students, as well as the general public. Is that the sense that you have as well? I think so. One of the things that I've been kind of troubled with for a long time is the fact that surgery is often uh, suspended in mystique and kind of, um, it's almost that secret society that we're in. We go to the operating theatre, we wear masks, no one knows what happens, for example. And I want to make that, uh, we, want to be, we want to be more open and transparent so that the public can see what we do. We're only human. They can share our kind of work and, and look in to see how, not just the operation, but how the team works in the operating theatre. And also remember, in terms of the students, they've been taught surgery for hundreds of years in the same way, all crammed in together into operating theatre. For example, uh, at our medical school, we have six to eight, maybe 10 medical students at a time who sit in the OR, and often they don't get a chance to see what's going on because it's busy, and obviously uh, the team around the, the patient in the OR. And if you look very carefully, the students in the back of the room on their smartphones, on Instagram, on, on the net, doing other things, not really learning or engaging. So, and they, they spend six to eight hours a day in that environment. I don't think it's good learning. So we've got to kind of challenge that and say, so how can we teach you better? How do we use these technologies so that we, we allow you to get good value for your, for, your, for your training and teaching? That's been the kind of uh, remit of my work. I want to uh, remind everybody that we're talking with Dr. Shafi Ahmed right now. And there is a tweet chat taking place on Twitter using the hashtag CXO talk, and you can ask Dr. Ahmed your questions and jump in and participate. Uh, Shafi, tell us more about training doctors and, and uh, the kind of mindset, the digital mindset that you're involved with and using virtual reality to, to help the medical education. Yeah, let's, let's go back, Michael, um, a few thousand years probably. If we look at education, um, we've come from a, a period many, many years ago, we were using uh, stone and carvings on stones to pick pictures, etc. We then moved on to papyrus and the paper came out and the printing press so that the word uh, was quite important in text. And in fact, if we go back uh, to a guide called, uh, one of the surgeons called Abu Kasif, who was based in uh, Andalusia, this was back in 1000 AD, he wrote the first textbook of surgery, Michael. And that textbook became the only textbook of surgery for about 600 years uh, because it didn't change very much. It's very limited its time, but we'll go through incremental changes in the learning medium. We've now moved on to, of course, online platforms, e-learning platforms. People are now using um, the web and internet to learn themselves. I see both augmented reality and virtual reality just as an extension. It's a continuum of platforms, and we've got to figure out where AR and VR, for example, will allow us to teach people in a way that's validated, that makes sense, and that adds something to the educational experience. So that's kind of where we are in terms of uh, the platforms. Where I think virtuality has advantage, of course, is that because when you put your headset on, whether it's a smartphone and a headset or a tethered or a large device, uh, more powerful devices, you're immediately immersed in a 360 environment. Most of the time, we've been training on videos and uh, 2D interfaces. You can literally imagine having a cup of coffee, watching what's going on on YouTube, trying to learn the fundamentals of video operation. Video's moved on. Now it's in VR where you can see yourself in 360 degrees, see the whole team working, see what's going on. And we very rarely have been concerned with the soft skills, as they call it, how the team are working, how the communication is going in the operating theatre, where are you doing? Rather than having the, the points of view, you're seeing the total immersive area 
of learning. And you know what? That's quite important in surgery. People forget surgery is not about the actual operation doing it immediately in front of you. It's how you're communicating with the team to give the best outcome for the patient. If things are going wrong, how are you dealing with it? How's that team behaving? I think all those things add uh, more of a uh, intellectual stimulation for kind of learning in that platform. That's where VR is advantage. So we've been playing around with uh, virtual reality. We've played around with 360-degree video, and that's been quite interesting. A lot of people are now thinking about storytelling in VR in 360. But very early on, this was going back, Michael, about three years ago, we actually made our own um, 360 cameras and uh, 3D printed some uh, kind of a platform for a few cameras like GoPro and things to stick together. We then produced some images and videos. We stitched together ourselves because that wasn't available at the time. But very quickly, I learned that the 360 video is only one element of learning. It's great. But you've got to add other things like hotspots, like learning material, make it into a, a learning package rather than just the operation. That's why I'm working really hard for the last two and a half years with my team, Medical Realities, to create a learning platform, a content that is powerful uh, and that's kind of validated so that it becomes the way of learning in the future. So you have the, shall we say, the technique of surgery and then you have the uh, teamwork and communication, and then you have the virtual reality dimension. And so given the, the, the technique of surgery and given these other pieces, where are the primary advantages of virtual reality? Okay, so I think, first of all, it's very much a, a visual a platform. And it, remember, most of learning now is very visual. Videos, content is what we use now to drive our learning pathway. And videos become such a powerful medium now, uh, whether it's YouTube or something else. If I look at the internet as a whole, Michael, people are now going away from pictures and video is the main way of people learning knowledge, either on YouTube or other platforms. So the video is very powerful, no question. So then we're looking at the, okay, what's the real advantage of virtual reality? It is immersive. Uh, when you're in the um, kind of headset, you do feel that you're there, which is different to watching a 2D interface on television, for example, or on a computer. So that element of, of, of immersion, where you feel that you're physically in the same room or, or as close to uh, as possible kind of, that adds a different dimension. You're suddenly concentrating in the environment, looking around, and there's kind of more pressure on you. So if you're replicating operations or simulation, for example, there's more realism attached to it rather than the traditional method of learning on a video screen, uh, maybe using uh, kind of traditional simulation models where literally it doesn't feel as real. So I think the realism certainly is an added value to this. I think we're also figuring out, Michael, where virtuality is going in the future. I guess we don't, we don't kind of know. It's still new for all of us. I think it's only been around for the last few years in a way that it's been shaping uh, with lots of tech companies coming into the equation. But we're just figuring out about where that content should be driven, how that content should be supported, and, uh, and we're still figuring out. Virtuality, sadly at the moment, is hardware-driven. A lot of companies out there bringing headsets out one after the other, actually, that's not the answer. We have to find compelling content in virtual reality to drive the industry and also to drive the headsets to people's 
houses and homes. So in some ways, I feel it's the content that has to be compelling. It has to be validated and reliable, which needs to be shown in trials and, and projects to make the whole virtual reality kind of pathway more uh, more. Uh, helpful to people. You say that the content needs to be validated and reliable. And I have to assume that in the case of medicine, that is uh, of profound importance, especially for teaching. And so this raises the issue of the acceptance of this type of content in the medical establishment. And at the same time, the ability of medical training and uh, the medical establishment to be open to change and using these these new technologies, and so what are your what are your thoughts on that? The adoption of technology in the medical establishment. That's a really good question. Now we could talk for hours on this one. I've got a, a couple of thoughts about all of this. The first one is around uh, you mentioned about uh, driving innovation um, and the adoption of innovation. So the problem we have in medicine historically, we're fairly risk averse. Uh, we try to ensure that we have robust data before we implement change. Currently, in this whole area of exponential medicine and rapid change, innovation is moving quite rapidly, yet validation is quite slow. So if you, for example, you're designing a, a, a new learning medium with virtuality, for example, people are waiting for the validation to do the clinical trials, the randomized trials, make sure you compare this with the next best item, et cetera. That takes time, Michael. It takes maybe one, two, three, four, five years maybe to accrue enough data to showcase this is the right uh, going forward. But if you do that, of course, you lose momentum. The, it's moved on. Virtuality will change to something completely different within five years. So the, the concept for me now in medicine, we've got to change. We've got to innovate. We've got to mitigate risk as fast as possible, make sure we understand what we're doing, and take the whole hospital and medical field with us on that journey so that we accept the kind of limitations uh, of where we are, and then validate as we go along but change the validation slightly to trials that are much more quicker, much faster, that'll give you a reliable answer. So that's one area where innovation and kind of validation are at a crossroads. And we've got to figure out how that moves forward. The second one is about healthcare in the, on the whole. As I alluded to earlier, um, healthcare professionals generally uh, don't want to change. And I use this kind of um, this saying that I often say at my, uh, at my talks at conferences is that uh, medicine is kind of steeped in dogma and tradition. It's who we are. We're still very traditional people. But my question, my kind of answer to that is, if we accept dogma and tradition, then we become mediocre. So I always ask my audience, how many people in the audience want to be mediocre? And not surprisingly, no one puts their hands up. Right? But by the same token, unless you're challenging it on a daily basis, every pathway, every kind of outcome, you're accepting mediocrity because things are changing, evolving so rapidly. So that's the other thought around adoption. There's always going to be the inventors. There's always going to be the early adopters, and they are self-selected. It's the rest of the healthcare professionals that have to drive change. And I've been thinking about how do you do that? Uh, it has to be transformative. It has to be. It takes a lot of energy, of course, to persuade people. But I, I think it requires a different way of managing individuals and taking them on a journey with you to show that the, uh, the new technologies might be beneficial, for example. So I, I fear that we've, um, we, we need to work on that a bit more to, to, to drive the change through the entire industry. It's not easy. And you're associate dean of a medical school. 
And so what is your your experience in terms of the the practical acceptance and adoption? I know that we're in the very early days, but where exactly are we in those early days? Where along the process of adoption are we? So it's quite early on. Uh, all this is new. Remember, even medical schools, sadly, um, don't change very quickly either, Michael. And I've been at a medical school for almost 20 years now. And if you think about the curriculum, let, let's take the medical school curriculum, Michael. And this is an interest that I have, of course. We're, uh, so I'm an associate dean at Bart's Medical School, uh, which has been around a long time. Our hospital has been around since uh, 1273. So a long time we've been around as an institution. But actually, if you look at the... Um, kind of curriculum, it hasn't changed an awful lot, Michael, in all those years. We're still running a five, six-year program. And I would say to people, why are we still running a five, six-year program? Can we teach medicine in three years? Why are we still existing to run the same program? And often when you're at medical school with other um, uh, kind of specialists and other um, areas of interest like physiology and pathology and, and biochemistry, and that's all these subspecialists are competing for a slice of the medical school curriculum all have interest to make sure their subject still has importance. But my thing is, it's got to change. We are still practicing medicine like it was 50 years ago, with the same uh, disciplines of anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, and then clinical sciences. Sometimes they're integrated, sometimes they're separate, two and three years or three and three years, uh, for example. That's got to change. Why does it have to change? Because a lot of the learning we do is unnecessary. We don't need to learn every muscle of every body, for example. I don't think it's irrelevant. We can teach anatomy in different ways. We can teach in AR and beyond the future. So I think that would change. So the curriculum takes a while for things to move on. Remember, you have to go through various regulatory bodies to invoke change. If it's just an exam question, it takes two or three years cycle. So that's the problem. What I've done at our medical school, Michael, and I'll share that with the audience with you, is I've thought about this. We're trying to create doctors of the future. Uh, and if you look at where technology is heading towards, uh, I call the future doctor the digital doctor or the connected doctor. We are looking at individuals in the next five, 10 years who will practice medicine differently to we practice with the onslaught of all these technologies I described, like blockchain, like uh, artificial intelligence, like wearable sensors, big data, pharmacogenomics, and nanobiotechnology, and VR and AR. All these are coming together at the same time to impact healthcare. But we haven't taught our medical students what's going to happen and how to deal with these changes. We've never been in a position where there's been such richness in technology. And I often say this is the most exciting time to be alive as a medical student. It really is so amazing. So I've thought about this. Okay, how do we do this together? So what I've done at our medical school, I run something called the Bart's X Medicine Program. So I'll tell you a bit about it very quickly. About two years ago, I approached the medical school saying, look, we need to we need different leaders. Uh, the doctors of tomorrow need to be flexible. They need to be innovative. They need to be entrepreneurs. They need to figure out how technology is going to impact healthcare. They need to be really different in mindset. So if that's the case, how do we create the future leaders? We go back to square one, redesign a curriculum. So we now teach our medical students uh, not using anatomist, physiologist, biochemist. For Bart sex medicine, we teach them about app design, coding, developing, and we teach them about all the future technologies. We talk about venture capitalist funding, how to go to market, write business cases, because that's the way healthcare is going to shape in the future. And these people will be inspired to change that and to know how it's, what it's like. These students go through a whole course. They go to a, uh, they get mentorship with groups of 
uh, mentors from the tech industry to decide on their uh, they decide on um, a, a product maybe or a solution to a healthcare problem. They go to Dragon's Den. They go to a hackathon. Really different words now we're using different dictionary or medical terminology, and the winners are given a, a kind of a placement with a tech company. See if their 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 idea can be taken to market to impact change. And now for the first year this year, uh, Mark, I'm really pleased to say with a I think probably the first medical school in the world to embed it into curriculum. There's no choice. All 300 students go through the same program. And we're the first, I think, to do this. But I just think it's just the beginning of changing the way we teach our medicines in the future. And you know something? They're really, they're different to us. Doctors now don't want the careers that we had before. They're 120 hours of work every week, for example, for X number of years, training hard. They want flexibility. They want to see the world. They want to travel. They want to be entrepreneurs. They want to challenge healthcare in different ways. And I often call them portfolio doctors now. It's a new term again. It's now the career path where you can do more than one thing in medicine. So that's the, where we are at the moment. And that's where I think we need to drive medical school education to produce the doctor of tomorrow, Michael. So we, we have a, question, a very interesting question from Twitter, but, uh, but let me just do a quick follow-up, if I may. Uh, so, so to play devil's advocate for a moment, you're describing training doctors who have a range of skills and interests, but are you injecting distraction into their careers, pulling them away from the central focus of honing their the, the technical craft of, say, surgery, for example? It's a really good question, and I, and I like to answer that, of course. So, um, no, no, of course not. The fundamental part of being a doctor is being a doctor. It's treating people, making them better, having the knowledge set. And that's always the fundamental part of any medical school curriculum, and we, we shouldn't uh, distract from that at all. But I say to you this, it's very interesting. If you um, ask medical students, okay, okay, you come into medical school, uh, for us, we call them undergraduates. I know it's postgraduate in America, for example. They'll come in, and you ask them, okay, what other skills do you have? We never ask them. We never say, oh, you, you can code or you can you run a business or oh, I'm sorry, you do music lessons or you do this. We never ask those questions, Michael. We say you come in day one, we will make you into a one-dimensional human being after five or six years. You'll come out with that skill set. And they get frustrated. They have skills that we've never seen, Michael. And medicine is not just about this one-dimensional human being. It's about art. It's about music. It's about human psyche. It's about all the things you add that you can add value to as individuals. And we never see that. So when I did a, this kind of um, uh, program, I asked my students, what else do you do? And I extraordinarily, some were running businesses, some were making money, some were doing amazing things in the back end. Uh, so they have skill sets we never use. All I'm saying is that those skill sets can be used in a way to shape healthcare. And the other thing, of course, Michael, a lot of doctors are leaving medicine. They're disenfranchised. And uh, not everyone's happy at the end of the day in medical practice. Some have left. Some unhappy, they do other jobs, some go into uh, management consultancy, some go to tech industry. So they're going anyway. All we're saying is let's give you the skill sets as a group of people to shape the healthcare. Because healthcare has got a problem, Michael, in the big scheme of things. There's no more money in the world. Everyone's struggling to find more cash. We all know we need more cash. There's no more money in healthcare. So, and that's not just the UK, it's every country. So therefore, you've got to say, look, okay, how do we redesign healthcare? Tell us what your views are, your thoughts to make healthcare more efficient. 
more equitable using the same kind of money that might mean some girls going away forming an app to with ai interface or chatbots or whatever to take away a lot of the burden of healthcare but unless you teach them all these skill sets they won't be able to do that so i i, I really think this is where we are it's just a unique position we're in never faced it before in hundreds of years but we shouldn't shy away from the challenge uh, yes you're right to ask the right questions about uh, what we're trying to create but by the same token is the way the tech has been driven we have to we have to adapt to these new kind of um, for these new solutions well and certainly some of uh, some of the most extraordinary doctors i know are multi talented they are hardly one dimensional ind individuals as 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 the cookie cutter training would typically end up resulting in uh, we have some interesting questions from Twitter. And Michael De Palma, who works at IQVIA, which is a uh, large healthcare-related company, as, as many people know, he asks, how do we get patients to adjust to this new world of medicine? And what about the healthcare industry as a whole? Okay, so a really interesting question. Thanks, Michael, for the question. Um, so yeah, so one of the things that we somehow often miss in these discussions is, is the patient, uh, the end user. And Michael, one of the kind of frustrating things I find in healthcare and all the conferences I go to and, and look at the tech industry is that um, often patients aren't involved in anything. I go to a lot of conferences where you won't see a single patient, but yet we're discussing healthcare and the future of, of healthcare, and yet we haven't engaged the end user. So we need to strive to make sure patients are the center of that discussion, always, there's no question. And, and I've certainly made sure that when we do this work that I'm trying to do to engage learning, training, and changing clinical practice, it's taking the patient on the journey with you. And I think uh, with technology, which is, can be scary for some patients, and the evolution of technology and, and its inception and, and kind of um, uh, use in clinical practice is scary for patients. There's no question. They're scared of AI. They're scared of robots. They're scared. I mean, I would be too if I didn't have the information. So we have a moral duty to ensure that that journey was taken together with patients. How do we do that? We engage them. We talk to them. So look, you know, this is what we try to do. When I'm doing these live operations, Michael, around the world, I have patients who are very supportive. When you're trying to do good, when you're trying to help people learn, teach around the globe, you'd be surprised at how patients are so supportive and generous with their time, with their surgery, with having, you know, to, to improve health outcomes. It's incredible how generous our patients are to us as doctors. So we mustn't underestimate what they can achieve. One of the thoughts that recently we had uh, around the discussion around XMED last year was that all these tech companies, we have, for example, <clears throat> the CEO, the chief medical officer, the CFO, um, and perhaps what we should be incorporating is the CPO, the chief patient officer in every company, to ensure that we don't forget them in that equation. And I feel that we should do more of that to ensure that they're part of that bigger discussion, they shape us, and they, they also they restrain us from doing things that aren't right or can be dangerous and they are our, our, our thought process for us so that we do it together also we need to encourage them to innovate so um you know they are the best people to know how to innovate for their own healthcare conditions almost because they live through conditions we assume we know better 
but I'm not sure we do. So I have a couple of friends, like Michael Serres, for example. Michael, uh, I can share a story with you, uh, is a wonderful patient uh, who's had surgery before many years ago as a kind of a transplanted intestines. He had a, he had a bowel transplant for, for inflammatory bowel disease. He's gone away now, formed a tech company to measure uh, the fluid in the ileostomy that, you know, that people have for surgery to allow you to have an app to tell you when it's going to leak or what the electrolytes are. He's engaged. He's worked out the problem. So we need to encourage more of that to happen, to go to the patients, to help us design the healthcare solutions that they need. And we're not doing that enough. So that needs to be, and every time I go to a conference now, wherever, I just say, where are the patients? Where's their voice? We need to hear it. And it needs to be loud and clear. The third part of the question was around the, the big corporates and the healthcare system. And that's, that's more tricky about how we engage the healthcare systems to work together, Michael. We have another question from Twitter, another great question from Arsalan Khan. And he's asking again about acceptance of change. And he's, he's asking about the cultural transformations that are needed to enable the acceptance of this kind of change that, that you've been describing. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Thank you, Arsalan. Um, absolutely. So this is really going to the crux of the kind of philosophy and the practice of medicine for many years. I, I, I look at that sometimes. And if you think about the, let's go back and look at the doctor-patient relationship. I often talk about the Hippocratic Oath, the oath that we've been given for hundreds of years about our pledge to our patients and our degree of professionalism. Etc. So it becomes a bond with us and the patient, and now it's been superseded by the Declaration of Geneva um, uh, from the Hippocratic Oath. But also, if you look at the pictures around the doctor-patient relationship, it's very paternalistic. It's a, a, a you know the patient's often below. You're either standing, you're talking. There's a connection there. There's the kind of human interface of touch, sound, and sight, and we often see that as a way to empathise and, and and teach people, for example, and. If you think about what's going to happen in the next two to five years, Michael, that's going to transform entirely. Patients won't be seeing a real doctor, i.e. a human being. The first point of contact for most people within a very short time will be an AI chatbot. It will be asking questions to a smartphone and get responses back depending on your answers, etc., and algorithms to give you a diagnosis and possibly even a prescription to go to the uh, uh, pharmacy or chemist to pick up medicines may be completely enveloped in AI. You may see avatars, you might see holograms, because the way we're going to connect with people is going to be different. Already, we're using telephone triage. We're speaking to patients on the telephone or Skype. So the whole concept of that doctor-patient relationship of hand-holding touch and kind of breaking news or bad news sometimes, it's being disruptive. Sure, that's reasonable and relevant for some patients, not all of them. I think we've got to manage it differently. So that goes back to the question Arslan says, we have to social condition people differently. So if you're a patient expecting to see a doctor for half an hour, yet we're soon going to be asking you to go to a chatbot for two minutes with your problems before you see anybody. That requires social condition, a cultural change from the profession and also from society. So actually, you're not going to see a doctor for half an hour, 40 minutes. You don't need to. For your cough and cold, you can access a chatbot. It will give the information you need. And perhaps that's the kind of uh, situation we'll be facing fairly soon. Yes, there'll be a lot of resistance. But I've seen areas now in London, other places, we're already now embracing uh, either telephone consultations or Skype consultations. And now 
AI chatbots for our vast populations to show healthcare is changing. And what's interesting about those experiments, um, Michael, they seem to be working. Already in the UK, we have Babylon Health and Ada Healthcare and others who are now actually using this in real time for real patients and seeing thousands of people. I was at a conference just uh, yesterday at Wired Health, I was speaking, and uh, Ada, which is a kind of AI interface, are getting a inquiry into their chatbot by patient every four seconds of every day. So you can see already we're changing the way we're practicing. I'm thinking now in terms of the AI that's associated with this and the kind of data sets that need to be enabled to make that AI work because you've got the technology and it's got to, there has to be a certain level of efficacy and that needs to be there before adoption can take place. You were just talking about resistance to adoption and the cultural change needed to for adoption, but the technology has to work. And so what I'm wondering is where are we in the technology life cycle of that today? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So where are we? So look, if you look at the, the technologies that we've been discussing before, that I often talk about uh, at various um, uh, kind of uh, conflicts and things. There's the whole AI kind of um, uh, discussion, uh, and that includes uh, deep machine learning uh, and also robotics as a kind of consequence of AI. There's the blockchain and cybersecurity areas and data. That's kind of another area of huge interest. And then there's the whole wearable sensors and monitoring of people, including pharmacogenomics and the access to genomic profiling. And VR and AR are slightly separate to that kind of environment. So those are the areas that people are really driving hard towards. So you're quite right. Um, they're not as good as we think they are. That's the first thing. Uh, they're very early still in inception and, more importantly, in, in practical applications. But they're accelerating quite rapidly. We're not sure. So AI itself is in already. It's being used today with algorithms. We use it all the time, we just don't realize we're using it. It become, Within two to five years, it'll power most of healthcare, I'm pretty sure. So that's gonna be really fast. And we're gonna to adjust to the changes of that happening. Robots themselves, if you look at robots, fascinating. Um, at the moment, they're just, they augment surgical practice. They take away some of the tremor and the error and make it minor kind of much more precise for most surgeons to work in. They're very expensive they became better. So in general surgery, for example, my own specialty, over the next, I guess, 18 months, there'll be eight to 10 robots on the market. We only have one at the moment, uh, that's Intuitive Surgical with their system of Da Vinci. Another eight are coming onto market fairly soon, including a collaboration between Google uh, and Johnson Johnson called The Verb. Medtronic have got one, Transenteric have got one, and we've only got a new company in, in Cambridge in, in the UK uh, called Cambridge Medical Robotics all again coming into this area. Well, that would happen, that would drive change, reduce costs, make it more, more accessible. Suddenly, the prohibitive cost before will be fairly cheap for the next two to five years. The problem with this though, uh, Michael, it produces a lot of data. Uh, all this that we're doing with sensors and AI and robotics, it's gonna generate a huge amount of data. And people now call this kind of area having what's called the quantified self. I having so much data, you become a quantified person. And what we haven't figured out is what to do with that data. No one knows. It's going to come through. It's going to mass. And we've got to start, that's going to be the difficult part. Okay, how do you access the data? What bits are important? How much control does the patient have? 
And we currently have the new uh, regulations in, the, in Europe, the GBDR, uh, which will come out next month, which regulate much more of the data uh, regulate, regulation uh, across all channels. So we've got to figure that one out as well. Um, so what's been disappointing, I think, overall, is the wearable and sensors. About three or four or five years ago, um, there was huge interest in wearables, sensors and you know, your Fitbits and uh, whatever. But they've actually largely disappeared from actual practical use because they were treating the well people, not looking at chronic diseases properly, not looking at the patients, how they had to utilize that. And, and because we can't have catch the data, know what to do with it, they haven't really transpired. And there'll be another circle of life for wearables in about two to five years, where we've figured out what the data means, how to use it, we'll go back and start using them again in a way that we haven't used before. So all of this is still um, quite a bit confusing for a lot of people, confusing for us healthcare professionals, because there's so many things coming together at the same time. But I think we're quite mature. I think we are, as humans, as healthcare professionals, are very mature about where they may have a role. And I think time will be the most important thing for us to figure out how all these things come together and what has impact um, more than anything else. You mentioned uh, this uh, accumulation of data. And obviously, if we can use that data, it can bring great benefits to healthcare. Uh, but then there are privacy issues that you also raised and ethical issues. The CMO of Aetna Insurance has been a guest on CXO Talk, and I know they have an interest in this data. But what about those privacy and ethical implications? Where does that come into play? That's of keen interest to many people today. Totally agree with you. And that's one that we have to figure out fairly quickly um, because that data will, be start, will start to be produced fairly soon from all these things we've described. So this is where, I guess, you think about what that data means. There's the hospital, uh, the healthcare system, insurance companies, uh, for example, but also the patient and the access they have to that data record. Ideally, we'd like to be in a position where all that data can be shared securely, that the patient will have ownership, and they can easily uh, allow their data to be shared if necessary. So people talk about this whole blockchain kind of uh, technology, which will probably form the fulcrum um, of, of data sharing because it becomes more secure, and it's the most secure form that we have at the moment. Blockchain itself is exciting, but again, at the moment, people are still um, haven't figured out where it stands in the global context of, of, of healthcare. But if you put that into position, so you create a secure pathway with ledgers, with controls at both patient and healthcare end, at least you can build up the ecosystem securely. And that would help us obviate some of the issues around privacy and uh, problems. I think the fact that technology is out there that will help actually overcome some of the issues that we may have um, uh, assumed would happen. And then that comes full circle around uh, autonomous kind of uh, practice. So if you look at this whole AI data, for example, and say we can predict on a chest X-ray um, with quite good reliability index, about 98%, the outcome of the chest X-ray that people take. And that makes sense to me. It means that you get a result fairly quickly. But what about if that goes wrong? What if, if someone if they are a machine or the chat, whatever it is, gets the wrong diagnosis. What we can do, how, who's, who's to blame? Where's the portion going on? Is it the software engineer? Is it the data that's been put in by somebody else? So that's really interesting. And what I look at the analogy of that, Michael, is the autonomous vehicle. 
when we look at uh, Tesla and all these cars now where you can uh, get a car, um, go around various parts of the world uh, with no drivers, for me, that's really important because that will ask the right questions about data, about ownership, about who's at fault. In some ways, it'll help us shape healthcare in the future by asking the questions already in a different industry. And it's really funny how these other industries, other verticals, will help support healthcare in the future. I find it, whole, I find it fascinating. So in a way, would it be correct to say that for you as a medical educator, as associate dean of a medical school, it's, it's these ethical and governance issues that are um, slowing adoption equally as much as technology advancement? Yeah, I think you're right. There's a balance there. People, as I said before, are risk averse um, and they don't want to change. And I can understand why. The legal framework, remember, runs behind. So legal framework is another one. I'm talking about governance. Legal framework runs two, five, ten years behind where at the moment. It's nowhere near um, quick enough or, or sophisticated enough to change very quickly. So this is where, again, we have to take the legal system with us. Okay, what's the, when I was doing these live operations, Michael, and we're thinking about the impact uh, and issues around ethics and confidentiality, we're very careful. What we did, we actually a- approached the governance team at the hospital, we approached the legal team, we had a big discussion with all the teams involved, all the stakeholders, to say, look, we're trying to push innovation, either using AR, VR, whatever it is for education. What are the risks here? How do we mitigate as far as possible? Where's that legal framework taking us? How do we... How do we use that to support us? So we were very mature in the sense that the hospital itself said, look, let's innovate together. It makes sense. Let's get all the people in together to ensure that we are safe and we are taking as little risk as possible and to put in safety measures if necessary. I, I mean, that's how you're going to drive change because you can't wait for things to change for you to make that happen. You have to take the whole system with you, including patients, including the governance team, including the uh, legal team as well. Let's say, let's do this together. And my story has always been about that journey. How do you take a healthcare system with you? And I work in the biggest healthcare um, um, system in the UK, Bart's NHS Trust, is the biggest hospital, the biggest organization, et cetera. So my view is how does the biggest trust accept change and move on? If we can bring this big kind of um, uh, system with us, it makes a difference. And so I've learned a lot from how to engage with the right stakeholders. We're almost out of time, but we have a, a very interesting question from Twitter. And this is from the at CXO Talk Twitter account, who's asking, if we take the human out of the doctor, does that really benefit the patient? I guess it gets right to the heart of that uh, ethical slash efficacy issue, as well as comfort with change. A really good question. Uh, thank you very much for that one. Um, I think yeah, we've got to change. Look, we're, we're kind of obsessed with having a human being at the interface. Now, yes, I can see the importance of that. I can see the fact that when you see someone eye to eye, making contact, etc., I, I get that. And of course, that's what I've been doing for 25 years. I break bad news every week, uh, Michael, to my patients who have cancer. Sometimes I break good news because they get better and they're cured. I know what it feels like. I know what that means to the patient. And that can't be replaced. I don't think it should be replaced. But my question really is around a lot of healthcare where you don't need that physical connection or contact. Can you replace it in other ways? 
I've used uh, beam systems to go around the wards, Michael, to see my patients. I've used Google Glass to interact with my patients remotely. I don't think you need to be there physically to be able to see a patient. They see you on a 2D interface, on a TV screen, or on a smartphone, or on a phone itself to interact with you to ensure that you're helping supporting them. They just want to know that you're there. And I've asked them the questions, will you be happy with me not being there, but being remotely, but using telemedicine or something? They're very happy. They just want to make sure that you're looking after them and you know what's going on with them on a day-to-day basis. If we move on from that point and then decide we're going to this AI interface, the chatbots, and also around avatars and holograms that I've been working with recently, thinking, okay, if we recreate a human being here, in real life using, so you might have seen a picture I created my own virtual surgeon using a process of photogametry, 104 cameras around me, creating this volumetric person that was me. Now imagine if you add a kind of uh, motion to that, i.e. facial expressions, and also add a voice that speaks like me, talks like me with my intonation, and then add Google in the back end, with all the knowledge around the world. That, that thing, whatever you call it, humanoid or avatar a virtual person could then teach a lot of people around the world okay it could support and um and treat people as well so we have a kind of mission now how do we incorporate that how do we persuade patients that they are still being looked after properly how do we, this is the whole bit about social reconditioning how about change the framework we can't carry on as we are michael it can't carry on we don't have resources available for an aging population, for more chronic diseases to manage in the same way. We've got to think outside the box. This is not working. For me, healthcare is not working. Not in the US, not in the UK, anywhere. And we keep doing the same thing over and over again, Michael. We wonder why it's not working. We've got to re-challenge it. It isn't different. I know what, what my medical bills and insurance costs, and I can tell you for sure it's not working over here. We're, we're out of time, but we have a few comments from Twitter that I just have to share because there are some, some really good ones. Uh, John Nasta makes two comments. He said earlier he wants to know when you're going to win the Nobel Prize for your work, uh, and, and uh, we hope that that's very soon. And he also points out that the reality is, is that chatbots will become better than humans. And so uh, so that's from John Nasta. And then Michael De Palma very emphatically makes the comments that no, you do not take the human out of the doctor. It's human and tech. It's not zero sum either. It's a very common misconception. So any final thoughts on, on that aspect? Oh, I agree with Michael. I absolutely. I, I think the two have to go together. We have to be sensible when we're pushing the boundaries. We have to think about how that interface will work better. And it's not one or the other. I agree. It's a mixture. I think tech augments clinical practice, as it will do. At what point it will make a, a big difference, we're not quite sure. Uh, and John's quite right. I, I think the chatbots and AI at some point will supersede human behavior. Um, that's what they call singularity, of course. But I also believe that's going to happen at some stage. Uh, I won't answer John's first question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I will just ask you very quickly and finally, what advice do you have to uh, other medical practitioners or, or administrators, professors in medical education who are looking at this and saying, all of this is interesting, maybe it's inevitable, but I, I haven't the foggiest clue how to start implementing this in my medical school. Any, any advice for those folks? 
Uh, the word is collaboration. Um, we live in a world where you can't do everything on your own. People are doing things differently in different places in the world, and it's about the collaborative uh, effort for everybody. So my, at the moment, if you look at tech and, and healthcare, there's so much going on. There's so many interesting conferences. There's so many startups happening. There's so many meetups. It's almost that you can't go a day without seeing something going on. And my advice to people when get involved and to implement change is immerse themselves with the people around them in that environment. Go and see them. Go to, don't go to a medical conference. Go to a tech conference for a change. See what's going out there. It'll help you open your minds, develop your own kind of thought processes. And so don't feel that you can't change. You can. And there's a lot of people out there working with you to make that change. And big tech comes, remember, need doctors. They need us more than anybody else to help shape the change for them. And I would encourage every doctor to think about that as a whole and every day in their clinical practice about how they're going to affect change and not be mediocre, but be the best that they can be. Okay, what, what inspiring words. I would like to thank Dr. Shafi Ahmed so much for taking time out of an insanely busy schedule to be with us here in CXO Talk. Thank you so much, Dr. Ahmed. Everybody, I want to thank you for watching. Go to cxotalk.com and don't forget, be sure to subscribe on YouTube. There are more shows coming up next week, so tune in. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. Bye-bye.